This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The city of Denver has taken a lot of heat lately for not moving fast enough on affordable housing. Tensions boiled over last year when a coffee shop in a historically black neighborhood that's rapidly transforming made a joke about gentrification. There were protests. We have a message for our political leaders. You have failed us. When it comes to economic opportunity in this neighborhood, you have failed us. You have left us out. You have left us behind. That sound came from Nine News. Not long after, a survey showed 94% of Denverites agree that the lack of affordable homes to buy or to rent is a serious problem. That survey was done by a relatively new advocacy group called All in Denver, And its members celebrated some progress Monday when the city announced a plan to generate millions more dollars for affordable housing. Kathy Alderman is a board member of All in Denver. She's also a vice president at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I want to understand more where you're coming from. Um, What's your group's kind of worst nightmare? Like what happens to a city that doesn't make affordable housing a priority? Well, I think the first thing is that you lose a ton of diversity and you lose kind of the backbone of the community in which that economic development was able to thrive on in the first place. And without diversity and without community, you really just have buildings and people. Buildings and people and not necessarily a good reflection of the workforce. Teachers, for instance, uh, I think are often pointed to law enforcement officials and the like. Of course. And the people that... um, you know, are making the community thrive, that are building that community, can't afford to live in it. Um, and that just doesn't seem right. Well, that's so interesting. In a way, the city gets built on the backs of those folks, but they don't get the enjoyment of the city and of living there. Absolutely. What were you seeing perhaps in your own neighborhood uh, or in your role in homeless advocacy that made you want to get involved in a group that essentially has been saying, Denver, you're not moving fast enough on this? Sure. So as the um, Colorado Coalition for the Homeless has been looking at the increasing issues of homelessness and affordable housing across the city, we were thrilled to see that there was another advocacy group that was engaged in similar work. And so it just made sense for us to partner and then for eventually for me to get more involved so that we could really create the community that we all want to live in, which is one that where everyone can thrive, where you don't just have to be a high income earner in order to live. This group was all in Denver and you want it all in, I guess. Yes. What do you see just as a a citizen of Denver that may have led you to join this effort? Well, I think we're seeing just a lot of transition in Denver that is not benefiting um, community. This is true in your own neighborhood, I understand. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on the west side and we're seeing families that have been living in homes for years, sometimes 20, 30 years, and they're getting pushed out. And developers are coming in and building um, multi-unit boxes, basically, on these properties where these old, wonderful homes used to exist. And it's really changing the neighborhood and changing the the not just the look and feel, but the I think the benefits that that type of diversity um, will bring to a community. And certainly the affordability. Okay, to this proposal, Denver in the last couple of years created a dedicated fund for affordable housing, along with a five-year plan to grow that housing stock. And on Monday, the mayor announced a plan, let's be clear, it's a plan at this point, to spend more than they had set aside before, mainly from a sales tax hike on retail marijuana, 2%. What kind of difference will it make? 
Well, I mean, the devil's in the details. So we're obviously cautiously optimistic about this plan. We're very interested to see that the mayor has listened to some of the advocacy groups and the pressure that's been put on the office to come to the table with a proposal. You, you think that the mayor has felt that pressure and this is part of acting uh, as a result? I think so. I, I think that there were some precipitating events that happened over the last year. There were people that have been, um, you know, pushing the office to invest more, to do more, and to take housing seriously. And I think we're at a point where, you know, that's on the table. The devil is in the details. Give me an example of where the city might go off track, in, in your opinion. Well, I think we have some questions about the um, the bonding option going to DHA and DHA. It's the Denver Housing Authority. Sorry, and yeah. yeah, some of this money is being used or would be used for bonding and then for building affordable housing as a result. Yes. And so um, DHA in this proposal will be purchasing uh, 25 sites. Well, we don't know where those sites are. We don't know what they will look like. And we don't know who those properties will then go to. I think the other concern, obviously, for us is um, this plan doesn't really address homelessness. Um, in fact, the the long-term housing plan that you just um, referenced had set aside some targeted numbers um, to address homelessness specifically. And this proposal seems to shift that targeting down a bit and put some funds in some other pots, um, specifically an innovation pot. And so we'd really like to see a more comprehensive plan that addresses homelessness in the context of housing. It seems that this money is going to benefit renters more than owners. Do you think that's true? I think that is true. And I think that's um, what you see in affordable housing plans generally, is that people are being forced out of their homes, um, largely because rents are increasing. And so we have to find a way to maintain affordability for renters if they're ever going to obtain home ownership. This group that you're a part of, this this nascent group that is pressuring the city to take more action on affordable housing, wanted to see a dedicated stream of funding, maybe even a tax measure that would go to voters uh, to raise money for this. Uh, instead, it's being done with these marijuana dollars. In part, the city will also spend more of its own general fund money on affordable housing. Is this everything you wanted? It's never everything that uh -huh. we want. But I think that this is a is a interesting place to start, and often interesting. Does it surprise you that this is the the stream that they identified marijuana? I think um, you know we heard some rumors that that could be it, but we hadn't seen the plan, and so now we've seen this plan, and so yes, it is interesting. Um, a dedicated funding source would be better, but oftentimes cities have to pilot things before they will really commit, and so maybe this can lead to a long term commitment. Any concerns that marijuana is the stream of funding here? And I'll say that the industry had a role in forming this plan. So it's not that they were shut out of the negotiations by any means. But if there were a federal crackdown, for instance, that might affect the future of that stream for affordable housing, which is a need that would persist. So I think there's always concerns with all funding streams. They're always under threat. I think it's interesting that um, the marijuana dollars are being proposed here because marijuana is increasing growth in um, Denver. And so the contribution to kind of maintaining community makes a lot of sense right now. I see. You're saying that marijuana is one of the reasons Denver is growing and maybe getting more expensive. You think it's natural then that the industry take part in some regard? Yes, absolutely. I think that anytime a new industry um, comes into a community, community, they should invest in that community. Okay. So the idea here is that if you spent $50 on retail marijuana, the tax would go up about $2. There may be people out there going, well, wait, don't we have to vote on tax increases? Why wouldn't the people vote 
on this proposal, not just the city council. What's the answer to that? So Denver is allowed um, to tax retail marijuana sales up to a certain percentage, and they have not yet reached that percentage. And so this is within that that range. How soon do you think we might start to see the benefits of this if the plan is approved? How, how soon might a shovel be in the ground or uh, perhaps rental assistance out to folks? Well, I think it'll take a couple of months for the interested parties and the other stakeholders to comment on the plan and maybe help to make some adjustments to it. And then it will have to go to city council. So we're probably looking two to three months out for all of that to take place. And then the dollars could begin to flow um, pretty quickly, especially the general fund dollars. Um, the bonding dollars obviously would come a little bit later. Let's go back to the idea of renters here. So it's clear that some people simply aren't renewing their leases because they just get too expensive. But aren't we also talking about evictions, those who are just kicked out because they can they just can't afford it anymore. Absolutely. Um, Denver and, and Colorado, frankly, have some of the um, least protections for renters in the country. And so we are definitely seeing people being evicted, um, not just for non-payment of rent, but for issues like source of income. So if they're if their income is not what people sometimes say is traditional income, um, then, or, then a landlord can refuse to accept it, like alimony or child payments. I mean, it's also true that people are spending way more than 30 percent of their income on rent, and that's generally seen as the threshold past which it gets a bit dicey. Yes, and we're actually seeing more and more families spending more than 50 percent of their income on rent and house expenses. Uh, we have hinted at the fact that this might build more affordable housing. Does affordable housing stay affordable forever? Not always. Um, affordable housing that's built with a low-income housing tax credits will only stay uh, affordable for as long as that use restriction is um, there with the tax credits. So we are seeing a lot of homes that were built 20, 30 years ago losing their affordability now. And so affordable housing is a bit like a treadmill you have to keep up with. Presumably that's what some of these dollars would do, not just build affordable housing, but maintain the stock that the city has as well? Absolutely. So I think a lot of the dollars that we're talking about investing in affordable housing is to preserve some of the already affordable housing that's available, but going to be expiring. Rate this plan one to 10 for me. Wow. Uh, I wasn't prepared to do okay. that. Um, I, I think we're probably in the five to seven range right now. Um, as I said, there's a real concern about whether or not this plan addresses homelessness appropriately. And there's some issues that will have to be worked out. But I think if all parties are willing to come to the table and talk this through, we might have something that we can work with. That's Kathy Alderman with All in Denver, which is trying to make sure that low and middle income families can stay in the city. She's also a vice president of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. And we talked about about the city's new plan to inject more money into affordable housing. The Food and Drug Administration may allow a product derived from cannabis to be considered legal medicine. It would be the first time that's ever happened. Remember, the FDA is federal. Uh, and yet not everyone inside the industry is happy. Reporter Kristen Nichols is going to explain this for us. She's a reporter at Hemp Industry Daily, and she broke this story. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. The cannabis industry has been arguing for years that marijuana could be used for medicinal purposes. Uh, but right now, it's officially classified by the government as having no currently accepted medical use. So what's this product the FDA is considering? What's it used for? Okay, they're looking at a drug called a Pidiolex. It's made by a London-based pharmaceutical company. It treats 
two rare kinds of childhood epilepsy. This is Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. They affect a few thousand children, and it's a kind of terrible epilepsy known for being resistant to traditional epilepsy therapies. So there are not a lot of drug options for these young people. Yeah, they're usually on multiple drugs. This is one of many that these kids would be on, but it has shown a lot of that it's very effective in treating this kind of childhood epilepsy. Goodness, a, a sympathetic group of patients for sure. Young people who are experiencing seizures, my goodness. Yeah. And the, th- the thinking is this, although it affects only a few thousand people, could affect a lot more people because a lot of people have other kinds of epilepsy. And a lot of pharmaceutical companies may be interested in investigating this whole line of treatment, especially because right now all the clinical tr- preclinical trials and clinical trials for this drug looks to have very few side effects and looks to be pretty effective. Okay. So there could be wider uses. Mm-hmm. Well, why are some people upset about the possibility of FDA approval? Well, it's funny because people in the hemp and marijuana industry sometimes joke that the three letters that keep them up at night, it's not the DEA, it's the FDA. That's the Food and Drug Administration. I think they're worried that this whole time, our whole national, national marijuana experiment has been underpinned by the idea that the marijuana industry believes there is therapeutic value to these drugs, but We haven't researched it, so we don't know, and doctors can't prescribe anything, but they can recommend some treatments. Well, now that there would be a drug that they could prescribe, um, what happens to all the other things that people are using to treat ailments that are not prescribed? For example, what I mean by that is, could a state health department that has held their noses and allowed doctors to recommend marijuana treatments for all kinds of ailments like PTSD and back pain, anything um, now say, well, look, doctors, now that there is a drug you can prescribe, you therefore can't be advising people to go, you know, grow a plant in the basement and use it however they want. This is so fascinating. So one door opens, they see that many more might close. Absolutely. They're they're worried back to the the three letters that they're worried also about the F part of the FDA. People commonly are adding marijuana and cannabis and hemp to foods. And right now, that's not really considered that they're adding medicine to foods because it's not considered medicine. Let's say I invented a magic drug, a magic oil that cures cholesterol or something, and the FDA approves it. Well, I can't go be adding various amounts of that to cookies and selling them at farmer's markets. Mm. Do you think that those fears are fundamentally founded, that somehow an opening in one would lead to a blacklisting of others? It's hard to say, but I think we're definitely headed down a path toward greater regulation for this industry. It is a cannabis is so interesting because it is used medically and recreationally and it's eaten and smoked and taken a lot of different ways. So there's a lot of different regulations that uh, administrators are going to have to look at. I certainly think that we're going to see a day when a lot of the CBD treatments that are broadly available in farmers markets and um, in all kinds of shops might see some more oversight. Now, this might have a tremendous impact in particular on hemp. How Mm -hmm. so? Tell us about the relationship here. Okay. This uh, medicine uh, GW Pharmaceuticals is making is mostly CBD. This is a kind of cannabinoid that the cannabis plant produces. Hemp produces a lot of it. So a lot of hemp growers are making making money extracting CBD from their hemp, and they face a lot less oversight currently than their colleagues growing marijuana do. They don't have the same kind of testing requirements and um, 
they have a, a lot less oversight of how they produce the CBD. The this drug, um, Epidiolex, uses almost entirely CBD. This company is also alongside their application for FDA approval. They've applied for a whole bunch of raft of patents, which one would expect. And you can't patent a molecule. CBD is a molecule, mm. but could the FDA and this company? really aggressively go after competitors that are making similar kinds of things with similar CBD and say, you need to go through the oversight that we've gone through. The pharmaceutical company insists they have no intention of doing that. But of course, they could. And that's to be seen. And that obviously worries hemp farmers. Oh, absolutely. Because very few of them could withstand the kind of scrutiny. This company has spent 20 years to get this drug before the FDA so that there's a lot of you have to research a drug for three to four years before you're even allowed to begin testing it on people. So it's a decades-long process, not just a year or two. And Colorado's invested in trying to make hemp a bigger economic driver here. Right. And right, right now at the legislature, there's a couple of measures popping that the hemp industry wants to be considered an agricultural commodity like food. Mm. There's a bill to say it's a food and it's not an adulterant if you add it to food. So therefore, the FDA or nobody can start coming after us for putting CBD in cookies. Um, there's another bill that would say technically um, you could be mar- you could be prescribed marijuana right now that people some people say that's just a measure to help GW Pharma because they'd be the only one you could then prescribe. That would be therefore a monopoly for them for a short time. But others think, well, we're going to have to go this way. And there's two ways that you should be able to get CBD, one from the doctor and one from the pharmacy or it, one from your neighborhood store. It's fascinating when a product can be both Food, fiber, medicine, the lines get blurred to some extent in the regulation uh, and in sort of who has the power to disseminate it. Absolutely. And there's going to be a struggle in um, D.C. I think it's happening right now. Last week, um, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, proposed to make hemp legal everywhere. His proposal would be to put it under USDA oversight. Now, what does the FDA think about that? What does the DEA think about that? There's other powerful agencies that might want or not want oversight and some say over how this is regulated. Yeah, is this agriculture? Is it it medicine uh, speaking to the blurring lines there? Does anyone in the cannabis industry see this as an opportunity, the idea that the FDA might be greenlighting the first federally recognized cannabis medicine? Absolutely. There are other um, biopharmaceutical companies that are looking at this. It could be a huge opportunity for big pharmaceuticals. There's also an opportunity. There is an um, operation that extracts CBD here outside Denver that they go over and above and use all kinds of stringent um, standards for how they produce and extract this drug using like uh, um, higher standards than a lot of others do and a lot more expensive, but they think we'll be well positioned. If this happens, they're going to start, they're going to start cracking down on folks that don't use these high pharmaceutical standards. If, if you do use those pharmaceutical standards, this could be a huge opening. Okay. So there's a lot of unknown. There's some fear as well. And I guess it's a we'll see situation at this point. Absolutely. I always say about whatever you think about cannabis, it truly is the miracle drug of news. It's fascinating to see where this is going to go for uh, patients and people that, that work with the drug. Kristen Nichols is a reporter for Hemp Industry Daily. There is a possibility the Food and Drug Administration approves a drug derived from cannabis that treats epilepsy. So the agency is going to host hearings Thursday and is expected to make a final decision in June. When we come back, a high school kid who made a scientific discovery while he was out on his bike near Boulder.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. From Boulder to Jefferson County, local governments are considering whether to allow electric bikes on mountain bike trails. E-bikes have small motors but don't make any real noise. And depending on whom you talk to, they represent a Pandora's box of problems or a vital tool for seniors to stay active. CPR's Grace Hood reports. Suzanne Webel loves horses. She rides trails here around Longmont's expansive Langerman Agricultural Preserve. So when she heard that Boulder County could allow electric bikes on the same trails, she came to an event to check out how the e-bikes work and to give her opinion. To see if the horse would be afraid of them more than a regular bicycle. But as she straddles a red e-mountain bike, her thoughts veer towards newer conquests. I'm not getting any younger. I thought, well, maybe I might enjoy going around on trails that I can't do anymore by having an e-bike. Webble is one of hundreds of Coloradans learning more about e-bikes. The small motors don't make any sound. The only sound here is pedaling. Okay, so I'm going to power up here. They're popular in Asia and Europe and slowly gaining traction in the United States. In Colorado, they came into the spotlight last year after the state legislature codified what they are and where they're allowed. The law gives local governments a say in which types of trails to allow them. Hard surface like bike paths or dirt mountain bike trails or both. We've had overwhelming response. Aaron Hartnett is a lead ranger for Boulder County Parks and Open Space. During a public comment period this winter, the county heard from more than 300 different people. Some called the idea dumbing down of exercise, cheating, and loud. Others emphasized seniors' rights over Boulder's mega-athletes. The biggest contention is over Boulder's dirt trails. We do have very popular, very busy trails, and it's multi-use, so we have potential for conflict, where we have bikers and hikers and runners and horseback riders um, all out there using the same trail system. As people move to the Front Range, Colorado's trails have grown more crowded. It stoked tensions between bikers and hikers. And Marianne Banal with Jefferson County Open Space says local policies that consider e-bikes are unleashing emotional reactions. We called the category general bike hate. And what it was was people just in the opportunity to say something would say things like, I just don't like sharing the trail with bikes in general. Banal managed Jeffco's public comment last year. That's when the county announced it would consider allowing e-bikes on dirt trails. But Banal did something unusual. At the same time she stopped hikers and logged their opinions about e-bikes, she recruited a few of the nearly silent e-bikes to ride by on the same trails. Here's this person who's decided this thing is, is really a bad idea and yet can't recognize it when it's two feet from them. She found out that some of the people who can't recognize an e-bike can sometimes be dead set against them. And so what was interesting to me was if you can't detect it, is it really a problem? This year, Jefferson County Open Space launched a pilot program. It will allow Class 1 e-bikes anywhere mountain bikes are allowed. Class 1 bikes engage the electrical motor when bikers pedal. 
Rangers and the rest of the team will closely monitor feedback. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a very polarizing issue. Gary Moore with the Colorado Mountain Biking Association says more research needs to be done. There is so much that we don't know yet. There's still studies being done on the effects of these bikes on the trail systems and on other users and surrounding animals and wildlife. Moore and his association are proceeding with caution. The move comes after the International Mountain Biking Association softened its stance towards e-bikes in 2017 after years of opposition. It sparked a social media backlash. A few donors even canceled their memberships. Ultimately, Moore says they don't want to lose any of the gains they've made. Mountain biking is still the redheaded stepchild of natural surface trails. We've worked long and hard for the better part of the last 30 years to gain access to areas that other trail users are already using, and we don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. The fury over e-bikes could get hotter before the flames extinguish. More local governments are expected to review their e-bike policies in the coming year. At the same time, the U.S. Forest Service doesn't allow e-bikes where mountain bikes go. In the years ahead, another potential challenge could be a patchwork system of regulations across the state. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. A Colorado scientist is being celebrated for a big medical breakthrough, and she hasn't graduated high school yet. Ishani Singh landed a $150,000 prize at a national competition, the Regeneron Science Talent Search. And Ishani, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You're a senior at Cherry Creek High School, and you won third place for your work with something called Turner Syndrome. What happens to people with Turner Syndrome? What happens to their health? Turner Syndrome women tend to be shorter. There's a lot of infertility issues, and um, they also have some cardiac genetic abnormalities. So it's a lot of like quality of life type of things. Okay, so it affects their heart. Yes. And how so? What, what does it mean? Yeah, so there are a lot of different like malformations where the heart just doesn't develop right. So they have some kind of like valve difficulties or narrowing of the arteries, stuff like that. So I was just looking into kind of more of the genetic basis of Turner Syndrome. Okay, so they, are, they tend to be smaller and their lives tend to be shorter. The longevity is affected by about like 10 years, but um, mainly the thing is that 98% of embryos that have Turner syndrome don't make it full term. So a lot of the death happens before that. I see. So this is a disease that presumably medical science would like to tackle at the earliest possible stages. Exactly. Okay. I'd never heard of Turner syndrome. Had you? It's a really rare condition, and I hadn't heard of it for a really long time. But when I was doing some research on rare conditions, I came across it, and I learned that it only affects one in every 2,500 women, only affects women. I wanted to do something because it's basically what happens is these women are missing the second X chromosome. Um, And I thought that the fact that you could be missing an entire chromosome and still have a relatively normal life for a lot of these women was really fascinating, and that's why I wanted to do some kind of work on it. It's not everyone on the planets who go searching for rare diseases. What what possessed you to search for rare conditions? Yeah, there's a lot of work that's already being done on like some of the more high profile diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's, things like that. But I felt like some of the other diseases, there's almost no literature base out there for Turner syndrome. So it just made it feel like I had some sense of responsibility to continue with the work. Now, you talked about this being related to chromosomes and you made quite an interesting discovery. We'll talk about the discovery in a bit, but what could it mean? for addressing Turner syndrome. 
The technique that I kind of developed can be useful in terms of knowing exactly which organs in the body are affected by the Turner syndrome, which can be really helpful in terms of healthcare and preemptive treatment, as well as I found some of the genes implicated in Turner syndrome. And that can be really helpful in translating to clinical medicine because we can find proteins that can kind of compensate for the deficiencies that Turner syndrome women see. Okay. And if we can find those proteins, what, we can develop drugs for this? Exactly. Okay. Um, You can just give these patients those proteins in some other way, whether that be through a pill or something of the sort. Okay. What did you discover? I guess it's really about these chromosomes. The common belief about Turner syndrome is not entirely true. So I was looking at something called mosaicism. So um, I talked about... It sounds like the root of that word is mosaic. Exactly. Okay. So what that means is that some of these women who have mosaic Turner syndrome, some of their cells are affected by Turner syndrome and they're missing that chromosome and the other cells are not. So it's a mosaic of different kinds of cells. Within one person. In one exactly. body. Exactly. So what I kind of hypothesized was that if you're living with Turner syndrome, then you have to be mosaic because if you are truly missing that chromosome in all of your cells, you wouldn't make it. So- Is that true? That's a very difficult thing to actually prove 100% because okay. uh, you'd have to look at many different embryos. Um, so my goal was to kind of develop a technique to be able to look in tissue for and look at cells and determine how many chromosomes are in each of those cells. And this will perhaps lead to verifying your claim. But you can't make that claim yet. Exactly. But it's a pretty fascinating idea to think that there are in one person cells that are demonstrating the the, the sort of proper chromosomes and cells that are not. Yeah, and it's it's very different across the spectrum. People who tend to have more normal cells tend to be, have a less um, severe form of Turner syndrome. So there's definitely a lot of interesting variation among Turner syndrome, and that was kind of what my work was focused on. I see. So even among those with Turner syndrome, there's variation. Yep. Well, Ishani was actually one of two teens from Colorado recognized at this Regeneron Science Talent Search. Also with us now is Kyle Fridberg. Hi, Kyle. Hello. You're a senior at Fairview High School in Boulder, and your journey to sixth place in this science fair started on a bike ride. Do I have that right? Yes. <laughs> Tell me about this day. I mean, that day itself was rather an average day. Um, I was just getting some exercise by biking up Gold Hill. Oh, near uh, Boulder, yeah. In Boulder, yeah. And I, I saw this vein of this dark metal oxide mineral along the side of the road. And knowing that those types of veins usually have gold in them, I was interested in testing a sample. But I also in other had words, never... you were you were gold hunting. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. But the bike ride was just the primary, you know, exercise was the primary goal. Okay. But I had never seen that type of mineral before either. So there was a kind of really two reasons why I took a sample back to my garage lab to try to figure out what the mineral was and see if it had any gold in it. And then it was actually in analyzing the mineral chemically that I found a really surprising reaction. Um, Which was? uh, So when the mineral was placed in sulfuric acid, it reacted to create this deep red solution. And that was in dilute sulfuric acid. And if it reacted in more concentrated sulfuric acid, it created this uh, purple color. And so... Rocks typically don't react with sulfuric acid to create these interesting colors. Okay, so the fact that that happened in your garage lab was a surprise. Yeah, and so that was what initially caused me to jump in and decide to try to identify the compound that had been produced. And it turns out that that in doing that, in identifying this compound, it led you down a path that could perhaps make a breakthrough in batteries. Shorthand this for us. How, How did you get from point A to point B? 
So I had, obviously, these solutions of this unknown compound, and I wanted to identify it. And given the fact that it's an inorganic compound, the best way to identify an inorganic compound uh, is typically through a technique called single crystal X-ray diffraction. In order to do that, you need to grow a crystal, which is a lot easier said than done. And so it was really nearly a year-long process to grow a crystal of this compound, um, and that was what allowed me to identify it and figure out that it was a new compound, uh, hydrogen ferric manganic sulfate, which I just call HFMS. When short. you say it's a new compound, what, what do you mean new? New to you? New to the world? Uh, new to the world, yeah. That is undiscovered heretofore? Yes. And that got you sixth place? <laughs> this yeah. seems like if you discover something new on planet Earth, you ought to get first place. Okay. So if you Googled this, there would be no sign of it? or I... Well, there would be now. <laughs> and down the road, you see that this might improve battery technology. Is that right? So currently, as some of you guys might know, lithium-ion batteries can have the issue of exploding or bursting into flames if they're... Sometimes on airplanes, <laughs> in cell phones, I think. Is that what you're referring to? Uh, yes, there, okay. have been, there have been certain <laughs> accidents with that. And so as a result of that, there's a lot of research to try to find better uh, materials for lithium-ion batteries. And HFMS uh, could potentially be used as a precursor to one of these materials for lithium-ion batteries. And the, the structure of HFMS actually lends nicely to the fact that it might uh, end up being more stable. I love this idea that there's a material on Earth that it will forever be associated with you, Kyle. <laughs> do, do you think about that sometimes? Um, no, not, not really. Not really? Okay. Well, uh, allow me to think that way. So I'd like to bring Ishani back into the conversation. And I wonder if you've been able to meet people with Turner Syndrome. Yeah. Um, so actually, a year after I first started Turner Syndrome Research, I got the opportunity to attend the national conference. Um, and then since I've also attended the international conference. So I did meet these women. And that was kind of why I've continued with this research for the last three years now, because at the point where you're meeting these people, you're developing a personal connection. And I realized how insecure they were with the state of their condition and how underprioritized they felt in the literature. And so that's why I've kept going since. They felt uh, like they just aren't getting much attention, I I guess, maybe even lonely with this disease. Yeah, exactly. It's not something that um, most people know about. It's definitely not something that even the people who do know about really see as a priority because they don't think that um, one in 2,000 is enough for their time to be worth it. But I mean, one in 2,000 ends up being quite a bit of women who are um, suffering daily. You know, there may be adults listening, um, and Kyle, I'd love to have your response to this, who think, how could a teen make such a significant scientific breakthrough? I mean, was there a teacher, a class, a book, a moment with a parent that you think kind of catalyzed the interest you have in science and maybe even the particular avenue that you went down? Yeah. For me personally, I did have such a moment, and it was in sixth grade uh, when I started watching these chemistry videos on YouTube uh -huh. uh, by this channel called Nerd Rage. Um, <laughs> Nerd rage? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, but he put out really great videos. They, they showed, you know, the hands-on aspect of chemistry. Um, the science was really solid. And that actually inspired me to build a garage lab. And that was kind of how I became passionate about synthetic chemistry. Nishani, how would you answer that question? 
So I think that for me, it comes from this initial idea of you just being passionate about something. And then after that, um, it does take a lot of different people to believe in you and see something in you to continue with work like this. Give me an example of someone. I had a mentor here at um, Anschutz campus named Dr. Kanna. And after contacting 50 to 100 doctors, um, she was the only one who was willing to take time to mentor me on a project sophomore year. She's at the medical campus in Aurora. Yeah. Okay. So that project ended up working out really well. Um, I submitted it at a fair and some conferences. And because I did well with that project, I got the opportunity to attend a summer program. And then I did some more lab-based basic research there. And that's what my STS project was. So I think that what happens is that um, it's a combination of being really passionate and hardworking and also being lucky enough to find people who can help you take the steps that are required to get to somewhere like this. STS is the science talent search that you just placed third in nationwide. You were just cold calling researchers. And finally, one said, sure, I'll, I'll take you under my wing. Exactly. It's a big deal. A lot of huh? resumes, stuff like that. Yeah. All right. These awards come with money. Uh, 80000 bucks for you, Kyle. Are you going to uh, dress up the garage lab or what? <laughs> <laughs> no. That's going to be uh, retired pretty soon because I'm moving out of my parents' house. <laughs> okay. And headed to college, yeah. I gather. And are you using some of that money for higher ed? Yeah, I'm using some of the money for college. Okay. Yep. Did you do at least something like purely fun for yourself? <sighs> I, c- I could. <laughs> I'm, well, okay, actually, I am. I'm going on a trip to Europe this summer. Oh, how uh, lovely. Backpacking through Europe for two months. So I'm, re- I'm really excited about that. Okay, Shawnee, yours came with $150,000? Yes. That's some serious cash. <laughs> what are you doing with it? Uh, it'll, it'll all that, be that's such a rude question. Isn't it? Like, <laughs> who asks what you're doing with money? And yet here I am. Okay, college? Is that what yeah. I'm hearing? Yeah. yeah. Guys, thanks so much for explaining this to, to someone who is, well, doesn't have a garage lab. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Shawnee Singh of Aurora is a senior at Cherry Creek High School. Kyle Fridberg of Boulder is a senior at Fairview High. They were in the top 10 at the Regeneron Science Talent Search. Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs is getting crowded, and park managers are looking for new ways to manage the throngs. CPR's Anne Maria Wad reports. Brett Tennis doesn't often get to take walks through Garden of the Gods. He usually has his hands full working in the visitor center. I'm usually stuck at the desk doing <laughs> paperwork and schedules. He leads the way through the towering red rock formations to one of his favorite features of the park, Signature Rock. This rock was full of historical signatures had all this history associated with them. We could find members of the Lawrence Party that came out here from Kansas, one of the first gold rush expeditions this way, uh, connected to Julia Archibald Holmes and all these historical characters. And here in the rock was evidence of their passing. Well, it's almost all gone now. The signatures overwritten by other, more recent signatures, ironically. What Tennis calls human-caused erosion, or better known as vandalism. Signature Rock is no longer part of the official tours given here. We don't even talk about it anymore because you can't see it and we don't want to encourage it. Garden of the Gods covers around two square miles on the western side of Colorado Springs. 
It saw nearly 6 million visitors last year. The park has joined kind of an unfortunate club that includes many of Colorado's most prized wild places, all of which are buckling under the stress of runaway popularity. What sets this place apart, though, from Hanging Lake or Maroon Bells is that it's a city park. We really have found that while Garden of the Gods is a very iconic park, Uh, And everyone realizes that to the local community, it is our park. Kim King is a recreation manager with the Colorado Springs Department of Parks, Recreation and Cultural Services. She points out that the family that originally gave the Garden of the Gods to the city required that it be kept free and open to everyone. So we can never like a national park where you charge an admission get in. We cannot do that. We have to make it accessible. King's been overseeing a transportation study of the park, prompted by reports that it sometimes takes two hours to drive from one side to the other. The study recommends adding up to 600 parking spaces and shuttle service during peak summer months. King and her department are now exploring putting in additional paid parking. We've actually come to the conclusion, and we've had this backed up by the attorney's office, saying that we could never close the park and start charging admission. But that doesn't prohibit us from charging for parking as long as there's other ways that you can access the park. So long as you can still hike in or bike into the park for free, paid parking seems to be fine. And King says the fees would pay for a shuttle system. But for some, it's not the cost. It's the location. The city plans to put in a temporary parking lot at Rock Ledge Ranch, a historic site that's technically part of the Garden of the Gods. The site is already used as overflow parking for special events. Hank Scarangella is the board chair of Friends of Garden of the Gods, a volunteer group that has sort of adopted the park. He worries about that lot becoming permanent. To me, that would be a big change in the not only the appearance but also the ecology of the, of the park. Scarangella is worried that if that temporary lot is paved, it would be an eyesore and could even disrupt plants and wildlife. And he warns that it could cost Garden of the Gods its designation as a national natural landmark. The NNL designation essentially says, don't screw it up. Don't, you can't change anything that undermines the basis for the designation in the first place. Jan Martin, president of the Garden of the Gods Foundation, which runs the visitor center, isn't so worried. It's hard to know what the solutions are, and I think that's one of the reasons that we're considering some pilot programs, to just try some things this summer and just see what might work, what might help, and how it impacts the customer's experience in the park. Those pilot programs include the temporary parking at Rock Ledge Ranch and limited shuttle service, as well as vehicle-free days. The visitor center will also test out a bike rental service this summer. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. Indoor skydiving could be added to the 2024 Olympics. Here's how the sport works. Athletes are in a vertical wind tunnel. Massive fans in the floor send them flying. The competition is based on the moves they do midair. One of the country's top indoor skydivers is in Colorado. She's 11 and hails from Lone Tree. We caught up with her and her family at iFly Denver. My name is Sydney Kennett. I'm 11 years old and I'm an indoor skydiver. Number one question would be, you let your kid jump out of an airplane? Uh, People don't really understand that indoor skydiving is its own sport. 
and it doesn't involve an airplane. It involves a wind tunnel. My name is Michelle Kennett, and I am Sydney Kennett's mom, and I am the shuttle driver to the tunnel every day. <laughs> I compete in freestyle, which you can make up your own routine. I compete in um, dynamic, which you're in the tunnel with another person. And I also compete in um, VFS, which is vertical formation skydiving. Like when I did a flip and then the twist in it, that was a flip twist. And usually that's one of the compulsory moves, and the compulsories are like what you have to do in one routine. Uh, I'm Andrew Kennett. I'm Sydney Kennett's dad. Yeah, it's an interesting sport from a kid's perspective because I'd say the majority of the time you see it brings kids out of their shell. She was the same way. I mean, she was so shy when she was an eight-year-old. And to see her progress just in there and outside of the tunnel was really, really interesting to watch. I enjoy it because you get to meet a lot of new people around the world, and you also get to um, just make up your routine, so it's really fun. After she was done training, I chatted with Sydney to learn more about this budding sport and her love for it. It makes me feel, like, really happy when I do it because, like, you can do what you want and you're not, like, restricted. Were you into, like, gymnastics or... Anything uh, like that before this? I was in gymnastics for like four years, I think, when I was younger. Does this feel a bit like that, but but freer? Uh, yeah, it feels like, yeah, it's pretty much like gymnastics, just in the air. What um, do your classmates say when they find out you do this? Not a lot of people know about it, because I don't tell a lot of people. <laughs> That's interesting, why not? Um, I'm not really, I'm like a shy person. I understand you got a sponsor, the company that has a lot of these wind tunnels, iFly. Yeah. What does this allow you to do? Uh, it allows me to fly a lot more, so I can like get a lot better faster, I guess. Is that because it's expensive to be in the wind tunnel? Yeah. What do you think is the future for you in this sport? Well, I think I could be in the Olympics because they might put it in the 2024 Olympics in Paris, I think. Mm, the Summer Games. Yeah. And if that were the case, you'd want to compete. Yeah. What kinds of things might you attempt to push yourself further? I push myself forward when I'm learning a new trick. Usually my coach, like, he shows me new tricks or I, like, make up new tricks, I guess. What are you working on right now? I'm doing, like... They're called helicopters, and you're on your head, and you spin. You're on your head, so your feet are towards the top of the wind tunnel, Yeah. and then you're spinning in the air. Yeah. How do you get your body to start spinning? You kind of have to move your legs so it's like the air pushes off it, so then you start spinning. You're almost using your legs as like an oar. Yeah. If, if, if we could imagine that that was water. Yeah. Do you get dizzy? Uh, no, not a lot. Tell me about the first time you ever stepped into a wind tunnel. What do you remember about it? I don't really remember much because I was four when the first time I went. Okay. How many people can be in the wind tunnel at one time? I'm curious. Usually I fly with like two people or another person, sorry. But like a lot of people can go in the tunnel at once. And do you do things together, like hold hands or try to do some sort of formation like you might in skydiving outside? Yeah, I do. So, yeah, you can, like, grip each other, which is just, like, grab each other. And it's called um, 
vertical formation skydiving or VFS, and I do that. I compete that. I also do dynamic where you're in with another person and you're doing, like, you're, like, carving around. Carving around. Tell me what that means. Well, you're either on your head or in a sit position, and you just move around the tunnel. Do you dream about this? Yes, I dream about it a lot. Tell me what your dreams are like. I usually dream that I'm in a lot bigger tunnel. Aha! Are there really big tunnels you'd like to try? Yeah, they're building a, like, 30-foot tunnel in um, Singapore, or Dubai, sorry, and I really want to go there. Yeah, that would be like the mothership (laughs) of wind tunnels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You travel a lot for this? Yeah, I traveled to a lot of competitions. Where have you been for competitions? I've been to Virginia Beach, Phoenix, California, Tampa, Texas, Seattle, and Chicago. Is there a hero in this sport, someone you look up to? Yeah, um, there's a girl called Inca, and she she's like a really good freestylist. And freestylist just means... Uh, what? Like, You're not following specific formations in yeah, the meantime. Yeah, you just get to make up, like, your own routine stuff. Does she know that you admire her? Yeah. Okay. Is she is she much older than you are? Yeah, I think she's, like, I don't really know how old she is, but she's older than me. Is there a danger to this? Are there things you have to be really careful of? You have to be kind of careful of hitting the wall when you're doing new tricks. What would it mean if you hit the wall? Uh... You'd probably bang your elbow and knee, and then you'd get a bruise on it. Do you think it's a growing sport? Yeah, I think it's definitely growing because there's a lot of more people at like competitions, and more people are starting to fly and get into it. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, you're welcome. 11-year-old indoor skydiver Sydney Kennett of Lone Tree. She just landed a sponsor, the world's largest indoor skydiving company, iFly. We're going to fly now. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.